Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. It's good to see you. Thanks for joining us today here, and thank you all. We have a bunch of people joining us online, so thank you for joining us online as well. If you are here last week or saw us online, you remember Wendy used an illustration of the well-known actor Orson Bean. Uh, Bean came to faith through uh, just regular prayer and encountering God as real, and eventually through reading C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity, he came to realize that the God he was encountering was the Christian God, Jesus. And uh, it's so here, here's where I'm going this. Between services last week, uh, Bev Cholly came up to me and said, many years ago, Orson Bean was on the, on the uh, uh, Johnny Carson show, late night show. So that, that's a while ago, right? And Bev saw the interview. And at that point, Orson Bean was going through a divorce. And Bev was praying for him and felt like God said for her to write a letter to Orson Bean, encouraging him to discover forgiveness for himself and his wife and Jesus. And she also felt led to send the book Mere Christianity. Until Bev heard Wendy say that last week, she never knew that Orson Bean had actually come to faith in Christ or that mere Christianity was the book that played a major role in his decision. Now, neither of us are saying that it was the book she sent that he read. But it's still kind of cool, right? What I love about that is she just felt like she, she, she had the courage to listen, God, listen to God and she, she had the courage to do what she felt like God was saying. And, and then years later, whether it was her book or somebody else's book, she got the affirmation that she actually heard God write that this book would play a pivotal role in this guy coming to faith. So I just wanted to share that. I just think stuff like that is cool and, and really neat to share. And I just I get a smile whenever I hear stuff like that. We are in a series called One Big Story, uh, most of this year, and we're going cover to cover in the Bible, highlighting the major themes and the major stories, hopefully hel- helping us all understand the Bible in its entirety more. Because study after study in America today shows that we are a post-biblically literate culture. Even many people in the church don't really understand the Bible. So most of our, our decisions about faith to either accept or reject are oftentimes actually based upon a significant level of misunderstanding or even ignorance. Uh, we want to help solve that. That's what this series is about. So today we're actually going to look at a story that occupies the majority of Genesis. Uh, in the, uh, it's the first book of the Bible, and it's, and it's kind of interesting that it does. I mean, you've got all these great names, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And even with all those big names, this one character dominates the book. His name is Joseph. He's a fascinating character. He's an inspiring character. We know more about his life than any other character in the book of Genesis by far. And from his life, we learn that there are many things about God. We learn many things about God. We learn many things about faith and success and wisdom. But more than all of those things, I think there's one really big question that that he helps us personally wrestle with. And that's what we're going to focus on primarily today. It's how would the way you view life and live life change if you truly believed God was with you and for you in every circumstance you face, whether good or bad, 
whether happy or sad, whether it's a full of life or a, a full of struggle, sickness and death moment in life, how would the way you view life and live life change if you truly believed God was with you and for you in every circumstance? In that relationship that broke up, how would you have viewed that life in that moment? How would you maybe have behaved and acted in that moment and changed if you truly believed God was with you? When you failed, whether it was a, a class or you got fired or you failed to succeed at work or in the midst of sickness or suffering or even disability that you're struggling with, that you've had to live with, how would your perspective in life and the way you act change if you really believed God was with you and for you, bringing favor and goodness to your life, even in the midst of that? How would you feel about circumstances, anything you face, if you truly believed God is with you, He has a good plan for you and your life, even when your life feels out of control, painful, disappointing, when you feel trapped by the circumstances of life? Now, that might be really hard for some of us here to imagine that today. You might say, I don't think I can get to that place in the midst of what I'm facing, of, of seeing that and believing that. But, but what if you could get there? What if you could believe God was with you and for you, working on your behalf, regardless of whatever you're facing today? How would your perspective and attitude and actions change if you believe that? As we look at Joseph's life, Moses, the, uh, the editor, author of Genesis, is going to illustrate what that looks like for us as well as show us powerful truths about God. We're going to look at a huge chunk of Scripture. We're going to look at chapters 37 through 50. So let me give you just kind of the overall story, and then we're going to look closely, more closely at it through two primary ways. Uh, the, how can this story help us see God as being with us no matter the circumstances? And how seeing God that way changed Joseph's life and how it therefore can change our own perspective and actions in life. So here's the story. Abraham's life from the family tree, we've looked at it. It goes to Isaac and then it goes to Jacob, who we talked about last week. And God renames Jacob Israel. And Israel has 12 sons who make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And remember from last week, Jacob was the youngest son and the favorite of his mother, but he wasn't the favorite of his father. So we see him throughout his life jockeying for the blessing of his dad through deception. And he gets the blessing, but he's burned by the deception. And he actually essentially ends up becoming a, a victim of that deception, and, and he spends uh, 20 years in exile. And, and, and he goes into that exile, and he meets some people who now, in the face of that, he is the one being deceived constantly, and he's actually seeing the worst version of himself and how he's being treated while he's in exile. Now, one would think Jacob would have learned about the harm of favoritism, but he didn't. He ends up having two wives. He was tricked into having two wives, but he has two wives, and one of them is his clear favorite. And that wife's firstborn son is Joseph. She's the 11th son born to him, the second from the youngest in the family of the boys. And yet, when Jacob saw Joseph, his eyes gleamed. Jacob could do no wrong. He always got the extra piece of apple pie. If he wanted the Xbox, he got to kick everybody else off it, right? 
On top of that, Joseph became the fashionista of the family when his dad gave him, I'm not even sure I can say this, this is kind of a hoity-toity name, right? The Laurel Piana Winter Voyager Cashmere Storm System Code, except he got it in the Elton John Limited version. <laughs> While the rest of his brothers got their coats from the clearance rack at Walmart, right? I mean... This was, the coat was really an honor normally given to the oldest brother who was the favored heir in the family, who in this instance was likely maybe as much as 20 years older than the spoiled little brat of Joseph, right? Then Joseph started having dreams from God. The first dream was his brothers and mom and dad out in the fields sheaving the wheat, and Joseph's sheave all of a sudden grew really big, and everyone else's sheaves bowed down to his. And of course, Joseph tells his brothers this, that one day they're going to bow down to him and serve him. He's going to rule over them. And that went over about as good as a whole hog roast at a vegan festival, right? I mean, Joseph is one of the few characters in the Bible who is a great example for us of following almost everything, Except this, if you have a dream, your family is going to serve you and you are the spoiled child, please don't share that. It doesn't go over well. I mean, one day, all of Joseph's brothers went out the fields to care for the goats and sheep, which in an arid land during the heat of the season meant they traveled daily to new grass and new water. So this is kind of like going on a long business trip away from home and camping in the heat of the Middle East, which I'm sure camping in that heat was just really pleasant, right? The brothers go, and Joseph gets to stay at home playing Xbox and drinking mango smoothies, right? One day, Jacob tells Joseph, Son, why don't you go check and see if your brothers are actually doing a good job and bring me back a report? I mean, this is a great way to set this guy up for success, right? Joseph dons his Laurel Piana edition, Elton John limited edition coat and starts walking. The brothers see him coming and a mile away as his colorful sequin coat gleams in the sun and they just get angry and they say, I've had enough, let's kill him. Reuben, the oldest, he decides uh, to talk him down from that and then they, they get, he gets them to agree to just not kill him right away, just beat him, strip him and throw him in a, in, in a cistern. Reuben steps away for his turn watching the sheep, and while he's gone, Judah gets up and he talks the brothers into selling Joseph as a slave to some passing traders. So you see a couple weeks go by after a long long walk in chains, and you find Joseph now on the the slave trader's block being bought by the captain of the uh, Pharaoh's guard, uh, Potiphar. Potiphar is like, in our world, the easiest way to explain it, it would be like combining the head of, of secret service with the head of special ops and the guy who runs the most sensitive prisons and the most elite interrogation squads in Egypt. That's, that's this guy. Joseph serves Potiphar so well that Potiphar trusts him to lead all of his numerous business dealings and household. He's a really wealthy guy so that he can simply focus on politics and his military role. And Joseph the text says, is also a highly attractive man. So one day Potiphar's wife walks up to him and says, have sex with me now. And she does this over and over and over again, daily asking him and even demanding it. Joseph responds by saying, how could I do that? And he refuses it repeatedly. And we know that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So Potiphar's wife gets to the point where she's going all in. She's going to either get this guy to sleep with him or she's going to get him. And so she gets him to alone one day and she's trying to seduce him and he tries to get away. She grabs his coat and keeps it while he runs away and she hollers, he raped me, tried to rape me. Well, Joseph 
obviously gets thrown in this special prison that his boss oversees. And this place all political prisoners go to either die or, or get executed or suffer a slow death. And, and, and Joseph decides again, it's amazing, to serve and just do what he can. And he does it well, and the prison commandant who is working under Potiphar puts the entire prison in Joseph's charge. And one day, two political prisoners show up from Pharaoh's baker and, and his chief cupbearer. Cup you know, the cupbearer is that guy who, you know, drinks the wine before the Pharaoh does, so if it's poisoned, he dies and not the Pharaoh. It's that guy, right? They both have dreams, and God gives Joseph the ability to interpret the dreams. And just as Joseph says, the cupbearer is restored to his position in three days, and the baker's head is, well, it's taken off, right? Just as he said. The cupbearer agrees to put a good word in for Joseph, but he forgets. So Joseph spends two more years in this filthy, damp, filthy, dark prison. Two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. No one can interpret it. And the cupbearer goes, hey man, I forgot, I know a guy. Right? Pharaoh's dream is of seven fat cows coming out of the Nile, followed by seven skinny cows who eat the fat cows, and then they turn to Pharaoh and say, eat more chicken. That's not in the text. But I wonder if that's where they got the, the, the thing from. I don't know. Not really. Cow, cows eating chicken, that's kind of, uh, eating cows, that's kind of shocking though, right? Because cows are vegetarians. I mean, that's just kind of, uh, that's a weird picture. Then he has a second dream. He has seven of seven full heads of grain followed by seven lean heads of grain eating the seven full ones. Even more shocking when plants start eating plants, right? Which leads us to a really important question that I've been wrestling with. Are plants eating plants also called vegetarians? Can anybody answer that for me? I'm not sure the answer to that. Joseph is brought before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, no, I can't. But God can, and he's going to give a favorable answer to you. God gives Joseph the interpretation, which is this. There will be seven years of, of plenty followed by seven years of famine. So God has told you this dream twice because it is sure to happen. So we need to store up during the abundant years so we have enough during the famine. Pharaoh says, Joe, sounds like you're the guy, so you go and do that. And so in a few short hours, jo Joseph goes from political prisoner to second in command in all of Egypt, overseeing all of the business of Egypt and Pharaoh, including overseeing Potiphar, which I'm sure that was kind of an awkward moment, right? The guy who's supposed to protect you now, he's overseeing the guy who put him in prison. That's just, that's just I would love to have seen that one. In a bit, we'll look at Joseph's brothers coming to buy grain during the famine from Egypt and unknowingly standing before Joseph, buying from him and, and he, the test Joseph puts them through. But eventually Joseph's whole family resettles in Egypt as prophesied previously by God to Abraham that they would go there and they would be there for 400 years. Now that's, that's the overview of the story. A few little twists. Vegetarian cows. Um, I don't know. Let's get some more specific lessons and applications first. How can the story help us see God as being with us no matter the circumstance? Clearly, one of the things people take away from the story is the providence and sovereignty of God. And God seems to stack the deck right against the ability to fulfill the dreams he's given Joseph, and they still come to pass. And that alone should give us tremendous confidence in and of itself. But there's much more going on here. Remember God's promise to Abraham? that uh, he would raise up his descendants to bless the nations and make God known to the nations. I mean, Joseph shows us God keeps 
His covenant promises. He is the fulfillment of that promise of God in at least two ways. Joseph's leadership begins to dramatically bless all the nations around them by saving Israel and and his family, the covenant people, and his leadership serves and saves all the nations of the Middle East around him. And the testimony to God's power and wisdom in that is, is profound, isn't it? And then in Genesis 47... Right after the family settles in Egypt, Moses writes this. It says, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. See, after Abraham and Isaac struggle to have children, this nation-building thing isn't going very well. Then Jacob has 12, and now in Egypt, over the next 400 years, it turns into 2 million, and the math works on that. It easily works on that. That word that your descendants will be as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky, the math begins to work. God begins growing the promise to influence all nations on earth to reverse the curse of sin and salvation. The story shows us a God who keeps his covenant promises, who loves to stack the odds against them and then just have fun showing up in power and showing how good he is by taking a snotty-nosed, spoiled little brat kid and have him be sold into slavery, then have him in prison and from the lowest of depths to be elevated to the highest of positions to fulfill God's promise to bless the nations through Abraham's seed. Now, if God is that kind of God to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to Joseph, then you can trust that he's going to be that kind of God who's going to be with you too. And if you can see that, God is with you and giving you grace and honor and favor right now, no matter the circumstances you find yourself in, then second, it changes the way you see life and the way you act in at least several ways. First, seeing God as with you and for you changes the way you see hardship. See, one of the most profound repeated phrases in Joseph's life, we see it in chapter 39, verse 2. It says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Where was Joseph when this was said? And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. He was a slave at that moment. And yet the text goes on to describe how Joseph rose through the ranks in Potiphar's house to leading the whole house. And then it says, from the time that he made him overseer of his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. You see, I think God is inviting us to know that when we trust that he is with us, that he makes us a blessing to whoever's around us, no matter the position we serve in. See, Joseph knew God was with him, but the story goes on, and then uh, he gets unjustly thrown into Egypt's version of the Hanoi Hilton or the, the Tower of London, and the text says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Again, even in that circumstance, God is with him. I mean, I'm sure there were days when Joseph must have thought, God, if this is you being with me, I I hope you're with me just a little bit less, right? But the text goes on. It says, God gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Second, seeing God is with you and for you changes the way you serve and you work. Have you ever heard someone say, just keep your head down? Don't stand out. Don't do things too well. Just, Just do them. Don't do them too badly. Just go along to get along and things will be better for you. See, I think that's 
when, that, that, that when we're tempted to do that, it's especially when things are difficult. And I, I've even heard Christians say, you know, don't, don't, don't step out too much, don't press too much, otherwise Satan's going to attack you, right? See, Joseph doesn't view hardship that way. He knows God is with him. He knows the promises made to his ancestors to try and to him through the dreams by God. And, and he sees God with him even in hardship and therefore he faces it differently. Right? When hardship hits particularly hard, sometimes we just want to escape. We, we want to just blame others, blame God. We just want to say, well, I, I can't fight the system, so I'm just going to go along to get along. But, but at each turn, Joseph takes what is set before him, no matter how much or how little, and he does it well. He works hard at it. He doesn't focus on what he doesn't have or what others have or the barriers. He doesn't focus on the injustice of what's going on in that situation. He just focuses on how he can work and bless others all around him, no matter where he's at. See, if you believe God is with you, you will live life expecting overall to do things well and for results to happen. The end of verse 23 puts it this way. It says, And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Question. Do you and I live with that kind of expectation of God's favor and success in whatever we're doing, no matter what the problem is? See, that's... There's this expectation in Joseph that whatever's set before him, whether he knows how to do it or not, whether it is in his ability to do it or not, that God can make a way. When the chief cupbearer and the, and the baker get thrown into prison and have dreams, they say, we, we've had these dreams. There's, there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? So come on, just tell me. Just kind of matter-of-factly, Right? There's this confidence Joseph has in God being with him that even dreams where he has no ability in himself to be able to say, yeah, I can for sure tell you what God is saying to you in your dream, that Joseph is confident God wants to do work through him and to speak to people through him. Are you confident that God wants to work through you and speak through you to other people? Because that's the God we serve. He wants you to live in that kind of confidence. When you face a situation that, that feels beyond you, what's your first response? Is it, oh crud, I'm doomed? Or is it, let's press into this. I mean, God has obviously put me here right now in the middle of this situation, so He obviously intends to show up and make things clear. Do you, do you lean in or do you lean away? See, having confidence that God is with us gives us a whole new posture. It is, it, we, we live too much of life leaning away, and he says, just lean in. Move from fear to curious of how God's going to show up. Move from being confused to trustingly confident that he's going to show up. Learn from, move from being stuck to trusting that he's going to do something so you step out even when you don't know where you should be stepping out yet. Years later, when Joseph is brought before Pharaoh, the same kind of confidence exudes, not in himself, but in God. I mean, imagine that situation. Yeah, you've done well overseeing the prison. You've done well overseeing the other guy's you know, household. But the prison is still dirty and damp and filthy, and that's where you've been for 10 years, right? That probably does a number on you. And Joseph goes from that 
to standing before the man recognized as the most powerful man, at least in the Middle East of that time. And if he's wrong in his interpretation of the dream, it's not going to be good for him. And yet, here's the interaction, Genesis 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. In other words, dude, you're the man. You better not let me down. It goes on and says, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's, it's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. When you are facing pain and difficulty in your marriage or a relationship, is this the kind of confidence that forms how you're going to respond in that moment? That God is with me, that God is with us? That God has a way through this for us that is good? When you're facing a boss who is really difficult, maybe even impossible circumstances that don't seem like you can change anything and it's really rough, do you approach it with this kind of leaning in confidence that I'm up for the challenge, not because of me, but because God has me here in this moment? What struggles or difficult things in your life are, are, are you leaning away from in fear? rather than leaning into in reverence of who God is and trust of God being with you. See, if Joseph is given a prison latrine to clean, he does it well without complaint, expecting God's favor from cleaning a a prison latrine. If Joseph is given the task of interpreting the dream of Pharaoh, he trusts God and confidently says, God will make it clear, so tell me your dream. See, what... What's God calling you to do that you aren't stepping into because you lack confidence right now? God is calling some of you, I'm just going to give a shameless plug, God is calling some of you to be in children's ministry, to serve children. Some of God is calling, and, and you don't feel comfortable with that, but He wants you there. Some, God, some of you, God's saying, be a small group leader. Some of you, God is saying, learn to pray. So when your boss or your colleague brings a prayer request up, you're actually confident enough to step and say, would you like me to pray for you now? And if they say yes, pray for them and watch God show up right in that moment. What are you not stepping into because you aren't trusting God is with you? There's a third way here too, seeing uh, seeing God is with you changes the way you honor God above all your own wants in life. Can you imagine again Joseph? He's around 20 years old. He's a slave. Sure, he's, he's risen to the top of being successful in this really wealthy man, one of the most powerful wealthy households in Egypt, and yet he is still a slave and likely has no prospects of marriage in that culture. Nothing more to look forward to. He's a young man, 20, and in walks Potiphar's wife. Given the power and wealth Potiphar has, she's likely stunningly beautiful. We don't know that, but he's, she's likely. You feel the tension there? How tempting and difficult it must have been, could have been for Joseph. And yet because he knows God is with him and God's favor is upon him, he honors God first and in that honors his master. And even though she didn't feel like it, he was honoring his master's wife by refusing. Here's what the text says, verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except for you, his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
Not, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar or you or his wife or against myself or cause problems for me, but how can I do, how could I, can I do this sin against God, he says. We sometimes, I think, try in life to control our sins through sheer willpower, extinguish it through sheer willpower. Then we believe if we do that, well, that God's presence and favor will then be with us. But Joseph believes God's favor is already with him. And it is that belief that motivates him and gives him the strength to resist sin and not risk throwing things away and damaging life because of sin. Not, if I am good enough, then God will be with me, but because God is with me, I could never do this great wickedness against God or you. Now, you may remember from our second or third message, the whole basis of right and wrong and morality in the Bible is founded on the fact that we as human beings, we are the only ones in all of creation, we as human beings are created in the image of God. So any sin we do against another human is a sin against God because we are abusing or defaming or misusing that person who is created in the image of God. That's also where this ties in and comes together. Finally, seeing God is with us and for you changes the way you forgive more freely and fully. So, story, Joseph interprets the dream. He becomes the number two in Egypt. Ten, fast forward ten years, the famine has spread throughout all the Middle East and Israel. Uh, Israel sends ten of his sons to Egypt because he has heard that they have grain and they're running out. And Joseph sees them and is overcome with emotion He puts them through a series of tests that don't end until the second visit. He wants to see if they are still, I think, and I think he's processing out his own forgiveness. He wants to see if they are still the mean, selfish, hate-filled brothers who threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. He he wants to see if they are still the jealous, petty uh, brothers who who treated him badly because he was his dad's favorite. And so he's trying to find out if Benjamin, his only other brother from that favored mother, is being... There's a rhyme in there. That sounds good. The only other brother from the favored mother... He wants to see if there's still you know, the same kind of stuff going on there. The brother who Joseph would have been most prone to hate in this whole mix is Judah. and Because it was Judah who had led the decision to sell him into slavery. But in one of the tests, that same Judah now offers to sacrifice his life so that Benjamin can go free. Judah stands before Joseph humble, sacrificial in his love, clearly repentant, and even alludes to the fact that he had greatly sinned against Joseph, even though they didn't know they were talking to Joseph, and talks about how that was such an evil deed that he is so repentant of and regrets. And Joseph can't take it anymore. He's been hiding the whole time. They don't know who he is. And he weeps uncontrollably. He strips his pharaoh headdress off and tells his brothers, I am Joseph. Now, can you imagine that moment with the brothers for a second? They've felt this whole time like they were being toyed with, like they were being set up. All these tests that was making them really squirrely and uncomfortable. Fear sets in. Here's what the text says. So Joseph said to his brothers, 
come near to me, please. And they came near. And I'm sure they all came nervously looking as Joseph hiding a dagger behind his back, waiting to pull it out, and nervously checking all the doors to see if the guards with their swords drawn are going to pop in at any moment. Come near, why? What are you going to do? And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He acknowledges their sin very directly. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Aren't those the emotions that we often go to when we sin, especially when we're caught in our sin? And aren't those the emotions that often drive us and make us feel like God is not with us and God can't be with us and won't be with us? See, I think Joseph clearly in Scripture foreshadows Jesus. He's the lesser version in a sense of Jesus in the overall narrative of the story. And I can hear Jesus' voice speaking those same words to you and I. Now, don't be distressed and angry with yourselves. There's forgiveness. God wants you, wants to be with you. He is with you. God wants you to know that and be confident in that. So back to Joseph. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Because in the eyes of everyone, you ruined my life. You robbed me of my life. But yet do not be distressed or angry. Why? Because God sent me before you to preserve life. God has been with me through it all. Later, after Jacob, the dad, his dad dies, the brothers are all fearful again, thinking now Joseph is going to take out his revenge on us because the only thing holding back his revenge has been our father being alive. But Joseph says to them, chapter 50, he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's a powerful question, isn't it? So many of our sins are us putting us in the place of God. Don't trust his wisdom. Don't trust his ways. We put ourselves, am I in the place of God? Am I the one to hold judgment over you? That's God's place, not mine. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God, he meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He's saying God wasn't in your sin. Your sin is a reality. God wasn't in your sin, but God was with me even in the consequences of the sin, working and redeeming and taking all the broken pieces of life and making something powerful and beautiful out of it. See, the fulfillment of his covenant promises to make us into a great nation is what he's doing. And Joseph trusts God is with them. He trusts them with him and he sees God's destiny even on his own brother's lives. And he trusts God is with them as well. And God has sent each and every one of us as followers of Jesus, as humans, He's calling to Himself. Even if you haven't chosen to follow Him yet, His call on your life is to send you to preserve the lives of people around us each and every day. And He works through everything that happens in our lives. Romans 8 says it this way, and it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. In all things, in happy things, in sad things, in all things, in good things, in bad things, in all things, in big things, and even little things, in all things, in successful things, and in disappointing things, in fulfilling things, and in heartbreaking things, in all things. 
God doesn't do all things. Remember the second message in the series, the foundation of love and freedom of choice that we deal with in this reality of our world. But God takes even the broken pieces and redeems them, bringing something good out of them. The reality of that, though, is we don't always get to choose what happens in life. Sinful things happen. Things God wishes were not a reality happen. And because we live in a world broken by sin, those things happen. But what we can choose is our answer to the question, is God with me and for me, no matter the circumstance? See, I think God is inviting us to answer that question with a resounding yes. When you come to know God and know that He is with you and for you, it changes everything. Joseph says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. You meant it for evil. God turned it for good. And Jesus says those same words to us as the better and more perfect Joseph. Jesus is saying to each of us right now, your sin sent me to the cross. But don't be distressed. Don't be angry. Don't feel like you need to be afraid of me. Don't feel like you need to earn my approval. Don't feel like you need to beat yourself up for it. God sent me to pay for your sins so that your life can be preserved. I don't think any of us learn to love or learn to forgive by just trying really hard. I think we learn to love and we learn to forgive by experiencing it from those around us, most importantly experiencing it from God. Now, learning to love and forgive, even in that, is difficult. Forgiveness is often a decision that's much later followed by emotions. It involves grieving. It involves anger. It involves sadness and so many emotions. And, uh, the, but the story of Joseph shows us those emotions. It shows us his struggling through these tests. It shows him wailing so loud that his brothers and servants can hear it through the thick walls as he wrestles through these forgiveness. But forgiveness only flows freely when we know and experience our own forgiveness. Corey Ten Boom, a Christian survivor of the Holocaust, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the most well-known Christian martyr of the Nazis, often said, I have no right to stay in righteous anger. Though persecuted, though subjected to horrible evil, though my family was starved, beaten, raped, murdered, they chose forgiveness. Why? I think Martin Luther King Jr. puts it best after his house is firebombed, he says, I have no right to anger because of my status as a sinner. See, it's only in our recognition of our own sin and the joy of our own forgiveness by Jesus that forgiving others even begins to become possible. So God says to each of us, trust me, follow me. Know that I'm with you, know that I'm for you, and live your life like you know that. It's a question. Holy Spirit's here. What's the Holy Spirit bringing to your mind right now? What is the Holy Spirit saying specifically to you in this message? Is He inviting you maybe to lean in to an area where you've been leaning away, hesitating in fear, not feeling up to something that He's put you in the middle of? Where do you need to trust His forgiveness of you? Or where do you need to walk out forgiving another because you know how deeply you've been forgiven? For some of you, that may mean that you need to accept Jesus 
as your Savior today, that you need to accept His forgiveness of you, and you need to accept Jesus' authority to lead your life today. You can do that today. There'll be people on the prayer team down here after service. You can come talk to one of them. They'll be able to encourage you in that. Let's stand. And I just want to encourage us now to use this next song to give our voice to God, to just celebrate how good, how awesome, how wonderful He is, how He is with us even right now. Let me just bless you as we go. Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us, we would would know in a confidence we've never known that you are with us and you are for us and that you want to make us a blessing in whatever circumstance we're in. Lord, that you've given us the ability to be agents of your grace and your blessing in our work, in our family, in our friends, in our home life. We'd know that confidence and we'd see you show up in all the ways you want to. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.